We are in Acts chapter 17. Paul has reached the city of Athens. Um, today will be our last study through the book of Acts for um, the summer. Um, we have gone through verses, uh, chapter 1, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as we like to do here. We're ending in chapter um, 17, finishing up 17. We'll pick up chapter 18 in the fall. And what we're going to do is a, a six-part series on the gospel according to Moses. Um, we're going to see how, how Moses points us to the gospel. Um, we're going to pick up six narratives, six major narratives in the story of Moses in the book of Exodus. I think the last one's in Numbers. Um, and look at the historical setting, but then look at how it points to Jesus, uh, the true and better Moses, um, in each one of the areas. So we'll look at the burning bush, we'll look at the Passover, the giving of the law, the rock, as you can see, that's been broken, the water pouring out, the tabernacle, and finally the golden snake that's been lifted up. I think that's a number. So that's where we're going to be going um, for the summer. We're also going to have some guest speakers. Some of the elders in process will be preaching as well, so you can get to know them a little bit better. Just want to, you know, uh, Bill Merritt is here, I know. Scott Haney is away, but they're in process for a reason. So family, if, if uh, you don't know who they are, they're going to be coming up, they're going to be reading scripture, they're going to be praying. Um, you know, get to know them, give them a call, maybe have a cup of coffee with them uh, and their families and get to know them a little better as they are in the process of becoming possibly one of the pastor elders. Of course, that vote will remain in the congregation hands come next year. So that's where we're at. This text in Acts chapter 17, this narrative is a very popular narrative. We're in chapter 17, we're looking at verses 16, following the rest of the, uh, the chapters. A very important, very uh, popular narrative uh, narrative, particularly in a church like ours, who takes seriously the command of the Lord Jesus Christ to go into the world, into the world, to make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, all nations, all tribes, until his return. The question that this text this morning answers for us is a very important question. The question is, how are we, God's people, to engage in a fallen to engage in a broken, fallen world that wants nothing to do with God, a world that, that is more and more opposed to the gospel, a world that knows very little about God. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar to you, let me remind you, Albany, as you know, is the number one post-Christian city in America. Albany is number two from the bottom of biblical literacy. People don't know their Bibles around here. Athens is like that. Athens is like that. So I would say that Paul's engagement in the city this morning is very applicable for us today. As you know, we're going through Acts. We're in chapter 17, and, and we left off last week in chapter 17, verse 15. And Ricky did just a great job covering the first um, 15 verses of chapter 17. If you have not heard it or saw it, you can go online and podcast or watch the video did just a great job. We've been calling this, this series Spirit-Empowered Mission. Spirit-Empowered Mission. That's because we've been studying the early church. And the early church was not necessarily or most importantly about where they gathered. It was really about a movement. It was about a people in a movement and taking a message about a person. His name is Jesus. If there's one word to describe this movement, this, this message, it would be sentness. If you've been here at all for any amount of time, you know I like to use that word, sentness. It comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send. It's where we get our word missionary from. 
We strongly believe, part of who we are as a DNA, that every Christian is a missionary. God calls us into himself and sends us out wherever we are, whether it's in Glenmont or in Tajikistan. When we leave this building, you're in your mission field. That's what we strongly believe the Scripture teaches us. We talk it about a lot. We talk about what does that look like in first century? What does that look like for us today? This passage before us in Acts chapter 17 is a goldmine of information, a methodology of how we ought to live out the gospel in our life, okay? It, it, it teaches us a lot of things, and Paul will deal with Athens, and we'll hopefully glean some truth from that and be able to apply it um, to our lives as well. So here's our outline. It's a five-part outline. Um, confrontation. Paul is confronted by the idols. Conversation. Paul has conversation with, with those people in, in, in Athens. He then contextualized the gospel. We're going to talk about that. Then he makes connections and bridges over to those people so they can hear the good news of Jesus. And finally, we'll see the conclusion. So that's our five-point outline, if you're following along. And then we're going to get started. Last week, again, Ricky ended with Paul's continuing on his second missionary journey. He went to Thessalonica and to Berea. And now we find him in the city of Athens. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul was waiting for them. He was waiting for Paul, excuse me, he was waiting for Silas and Timothy who had left behind in Berea to come to Athens. So he's waiting in Athens for them. You need to know that Athens was a very important city in Greece. Athens was the intellectual center of the world, sort of like Oxford in the 19th century or, or let's say Harvard or Yale in their day. And although Rome had conquered Athens, 146 B.C., I believe, Athens retained some supremacy um, because the, the, the Romans loved everything that was Greek. And she was, uh, Athens had a place, was a place where they had, uh, great philosophers came from, Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato. Some of you studied them in school. Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. Zeno. But, they were, but by the time Paul got there, there was about... Four or five hundred years since this, this tremendous building up of this city. So it had some, it, had, it still was the elite center, still was the intellectual center where philosophies and debaters come, but it was on the downward slide. It was also a place, not only for intellectual debaters and scholars, it was a place for art, architecture. Uh, it, was, um, it was a place that was very, very important in the Roman Empire. Um, a lot of the art in those cities and a lot of the architecture in those cities were um, of the gods and the goddesses of the Greek world. Okay? So here's Paul hanging out in Athens where all this Greek mythology has been born, all this Greek philosophy has been born, and he's looking around and he is provoked, the Bible says, about, his, about the idolatry, all the idols in that city. In antiquity, someone once wrote, it is easier to find a god, small g, than a human in Athens. You can imagine what that city was like. Now, the word provoked 
is the same word that we looked in chapter 15 when Paul and Barnabas were, had a heated debate about John Mark. They were provoked. It was arduous. It was violent expression. It, was, it, it means to have a sudden attack. Paul is looking around. Paul sees the idolatry. Paul sees the idols, and he's irritated. Man, he's outraged. Very, very deep word. He's, he's annoyed. He's irritated at the idols. And he, and he deeply feels it in his soul. Now, I, picture, I, I painted a picture of Athens with the idols. You could imagine Paul walking into the city, seeing all these statues of all these idols, all these temples, and he's just grieved by it. And you say, well, that's great. Doesn't really apply to, to Albany, New York. Glenmont, well, actually it does. Tim Keller said, I think it was Tim Keller, he said, go to a city, find its tallest buildings, and there you will find their idols. Whether it's Wall Street, sports stadiums, soccer fields. In the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is very clear. Have no other God before me. Anything else? Is an idol. It's not necessarily things that you make. It's not necessarily carven images that you create. Ken Sandy says this about idolatry. I want you to get this picture. He says, an idol is not simply a statue of wood or stone or metal. It is anything we love and pursue in place of God. It can also be referred to as a false god, a functional god. He says, in biblical terms, an idol is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters us and rules us, or that we serve. Richard Key says this, an idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as God would. All sorts of things are potential idols, depending only on our attitude and actions. He says, idolatry may not involve explicit denial of God, his character, or his existence, it may well come in the form of, listen, an over-attachment to something. An idol is something that we have an over-attachment to. Could be property. It could be uh, objects, a person, an activity, a role, a position, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. John Calvin just simply says, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. Give me a little picture of an idol. Last one, Tim Keller. Can't, can't talk about idolatry without bringing Dr. Keller in. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Absorbs anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central. Listen, a counterfeit God, a false God, an idol, is anything so central and essential, central and essential to your life, that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. One of the ways 
that idolatry in your life and in my life shows and rears its ugly head is when we lose it. End the relationship. Take the alcohol. We'll see what your idols are. Now, two important questions arise from this, uh, this first point. Number one, do you really know what your idols are? I mean, it's, you know, he's looking around. He sees the idolatry. It's plain to him. He's a Jew. He's not, he doesn't necessarily see all this stuff all the time. It was clear in his sight. Look at these temples. Sometimes when we're living in our own culture, in our own world, in our own fishbowl, we don't necessarily see our idols very well. The apostle saw the idols and he was grieved. He recognized the idols and he was grieved by it. And and if you're not grieved by the idols, maybe something different is going on. Maybe something more deeper is being, or is, is, is something deeper going on in your life. Number two. Paul is confronted by the idols. He recognizes them. He sees them. He knows what they are. So do we. But number two is, he doesn't run from the idolatry. Right? I I think Paul knew enough about Jesus, about the gospel, that he recognized that he too once was an idol worshiper. And he doesn't go to the city, looks around the city, sees the idolatry. He's grieved by it. He's irritated by it. He's annoyed by it. He's angry by it. And then go, I'm not going there. These people are crazy. I'm done. Let me get on the ship and get out of here. He doesn't do that. How easy is it for us to see idols in other people's lives, in the culture, see the brokenness of the culture, the the sinfulness of the culture, and say, I'm not going to speak to that. Why Why would I do that? He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't respond as a separatist and say, I want nothing to do that. He doesn't respond and emulate the culture and say, you know what, I'll just jump in and worship the idols with them. He doesn't escape culture. He doesn't emulate culture. What does he do? He engages the culture. John 17 in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, this is what he prays. He prays that we stay off two teams. He says in chapter 17, verse 14, Jesus is praying for his followers. That's us. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In other words, you're going to share the gospel, you're going to speak the word of God, you're going to walk with Jesus, people are going to hate you. So, so don't emulate the culture, don't, don't follow the culture, stand true, be sanctified, he says, by the word. He says, but I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So you see what he's saying? He's saying don't escape and don't emulate. Sanctified, set apart, but engaged. Always called in, be sent out. That, that's what Paul is doing. He engages them, he confronts them in love about their idols in the message of Jesus Christ. So he starts his conversation, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day, marketplace every day, with those who happen to be there. He conversed with them. Okay, so Paul begins conversing with anyone he would talk to. He's running into people, he's conversing with them, and, and the Bible tells us that there were three groups there. First, notice our text. He goes into the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons. Regular occurrence, 
Paul would go to a city. He'd find out where the, where the Bible was being read, the Bible was being preached, the Bible was being taught, which would be the synagogues. And the first place he goes is right into the synagogue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what you find there are two people. It says here the Jews, which would be like Paul, who's a Jew, and the devout persons, which is what we've been seeing throughout Acts, the God-fearers. Gentiles who've been converted to Judaism who recognize the authority of Scripture, believe in the Bible. Maybe some men were even circumcised, but they were at least followers of Yahweh. They were Gentiles. They weren't Jews, but they were converted to Judaism. So you see them both there. And what we see Paul doing here is he's conversing then after he goes there into the marketplace. The marketplace is where the pagans were, the polytheistics were, those who believed in multiple gods. Now, in your Bible, it says marketplace. It's not Walmart and Target. That's not what it means, okay? Because, you know, you see marketplace, you're thinking price chopper. And there's Paul at the end when you're checking out with a track saying, do you know where you'll go when you die? That's not, the, that's not the scene. Get that out of your head, okay? He's not outside selling baked goods and stuff. That's not, that's not the marketplace, okay? The marketplace in this text is called the Agora, It's a place not just for vendors and farmers. It was a place of of cultural connectedness. It was was, uh, where the community went. It's where they hung out. It was the cultural center. It was where you would get news. It was like the media center when the heralders were there would be talking about the news of what's going on. It would be um, business transactions would happen in the Agora. It would where businessmen would come from different cities and they would have transactions going on in the Agora, in the marketplace. It was a political center, art center, entertainment center. Okay, that's the Agora. It it was a place where the philosophers would come and the philosophical debates would happen. That's the Agora. New ideas would be discussed. And here he is, Paul, going to the synagogue and now to the marketplace, conversing with them. Okay, both places, reasoning with them. Same word that Ricky talked about last week. Dialogamai means to dialogue. Okay, it's not simply, I I think Ricky mentioned this last week as well. It's not simply, I got something to say, I'm preaching a message to you, I'm sharing with you with Christ. It, it's about, it's about, it's not even a debate in a sense, like you see on, uh, maybe on a, when, when uh, a political debate, where, you know, you ask the question, he just ignores the question, and both sides do it, okay, and then they just got their own platform, they got cue cards. Doesn't really matter what you ask me, because I'm reading right off of that, it doesn't really, that's not what we're talking about. This is about sharing ideas, This is about hearing one another. That's what's going on here, right? Asking questions, listening to premises, listening careful to ideas, and then showing and proving and reasoning, showing that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. How awesome would it be if we were in dialogue with people around us So even though we are firm in our faith, and we ought to be, they know that we love them, we hear them, we listen to them, we respect them, we don't agree, but we respect them, we honor with dignity all people. That would go a long way. That's what what Paul's doing here. And the third group, as we see, Paul deals with is the Epicureans. Paul was not afraid to hit head-on the philosophy, the major, the major players of his day. It reminds me of what, the, what he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, we preach Christ crucified, 
stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called Jew and Gentiles, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. He wasn't afraid. Look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean is the third group, and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Okay, who are they? The Epicureans, followers of Epicurus. They believe that everything happened by chance, that, that death is the end, extinction, annihilation happens, there is no afterlife. That's what they taught. The, the Epicureans did not deny that God existed, but God was more of a deistic God where he set things in motion and kind of removed from life itself. Didn't really care about life. He wasn't involved in life. Their Epicurean philosophy was man live. Because this is all there is. Live for pleasure. Do what feels good. At the end, we're done. There's nothing left really in the world. They were, they were, they were like practical agnostics who believe that pleasure is the chief of man. And of course, they just live for pleasure. Right? They live for pleasure. They're the relativists. It's all you got. It's all you got. So live whatever feels good to you, whatever feels right to you, because when the end comes, we're done. Now, you may not call yourself an Epicurean, but there are a lot of people that live that way, amen? Just live for pleasure. Whatever feels good, do it. Then the Stoics, on the other hand, following the teaching of Zeno, pantheists, believe that everything, God is in everything, Right? They're the moralists. They believe in moral absolutes. They believe that God, that, excuse me, that life was to be good and virtuous and noble. They were the moralists. They were, they were to follow the, the rules. Think of Spock, right? Stoic, got to do what's right, no matter what. Don't cry, don't weep, just do what's right. And these two people are, are, are engaging with Paul, and Paul takes them on, and, and he says, look what it says, and some said to him, what does this babbler wish to say. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So what's Paul preaching? Jesus and the resurrection. Now the word babbler, interesting word, it has to do with a bird picking up seeds, walking around aimlessly just picking up seeds. It had to do, later on it became with, with peddling with one another. He's a bird seed. So in other words, it's not flattering. When he calls him a babbler, it wasn't a flattering statement. What he's saying is Paul is picking up a little bit from all different philosophies, shaking it all together. He really doesn't know what he's talking about. And he is spreading the seed and see if anything sticks because he's just picking up stuff along the way and trying to slap philosophies together, starting this new philosophy. You ever... Have you ever been, if you're a Christian, not, you don't have to be a Christian very long time, but you, have you ever been and have someone say to you that you're a babbler? You know, you're one of those Bible-believing, hard-headed, lack of reasoning, believe this ancient book, right? I mean, that, you know, that's what people say to, to you. Don't they say that to you? Like, oh, you really believe that Bible? You really believe that Jesus Christ is God? You really believe Man, you just, you just believe any, any old thing. No, no, we have strong reasons to believe the Scripture. And, and they, they hear this, and they're like, you know what? We're, we're going to we're gonna have to deal with this some more. In verse 19, they took him, that's Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, 
we may know what this teaching is that you are presenting. We need, we need to know what's going on. Verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So you see what's going on here? Paul is, is being taken to the Areopagus because they want to give him an interview. Like, there are a lot of gods out there. There are a lot of philosophies out there. You sound like a babbler. We really don't know what you're saying, but you know what? Let's go to the Areopagus, which is for Latin Mars Hill, and let's hear what you have to say. Let, let's put you on trial. Let's discover, let's, let's understand what you're trying to tell us. So they take him from the Agora, and they bring him to the Areopagus, this is Mars Hill, which was between the, the marketplace and this high, high place in the city. And what's interesting about this place is what sat over this place and what loomed in its background was all the giant temples. I think one of the temples' name is oh, Parthenon. It, it was a temple to Athena, a Greek goddess of wisdom. So here, look at, look at, think about this. He's in the marketplace. He's battling, you know, not battling, but he's conversing with these people. And they take him to this place. And as he's going, he's going into this, this Mars Hill where this giant temple of wisdom is and all these multiple gods and all these temple worships and all these statues. And then before the audience of these highly philosophical, you know, people, they're like, okay, Paul, I want, I want to paint that picture for you. Because what would you do in that case? What would you do if you had an audience? What, if, what would you do if all of a sudden at work, you come to work one day and there's four people standing there and saying, you know what, you've been talking about Jesus. We want to hear it. And they put you right on the spot. Would you know what to say? I know the first thing you would say, Lord, dear, help me. You know, but after that. Because <laughs> you better pray. Right? You better pray. So what does Paul do? Let's go next to contextualization. Uh, this, is, this is just a great grace verse of scripture. So Paul, in the midst of this Mars Hill, this is the stadium of, of, of idols and these mass, you know, group of, of intellectuals standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way, you are very religious. I get it. You're, you're trying to be spiritual. I mean, I don't know how you can miss that, right? For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This I proclaim to you. Now, the word unknown to the unknown is where we get the word agnostic, without knowledge. I think Paul's saying, listen, you guys think you know everything? You guys got it all locked down? You got your, you know, your philosophies, you know, and, your, and your, you, know, you, you know what to say, but you know what? You don't know the most important thing. There's, there's something going on in your heart, and, and here it is. You have, a, you have a, a, a place for the unknown God. And notice what he says. He doesn't say what therefore you worship. He doesn't say who you therefore worship. You notice that? What therefore you, it wasn't who, it wasn't the one true God that they have a personal relationship, it was what they worship. The altar to the unknown God was placed in the midst, just if you never heard this before, let me tell you, the reason that there was an altar to the unknown God was because they were polytheistic, they worshiped multiple gods, they were afraid that they missed one of the gods. So they were afraid that 
You know, if they worship the God of the ocean, they worship the God of, of the ground and the stars and the moon, there may be a deity out there somewhere that we missed and we don't want them to get them angry. That he wasn't properly worshipped. So they would set up this, this, this platform, this altar, to the unknown God, just in case. But notice Paul says, see, he, what he's doing is he's setting them up. He is, he, is, he is contextualizing. He's trying to get into their head. He's trying to get into their culture so that he can bring them to the place and point them to Jesus. Notice too, Paul says, as I was passing along, walking about, I observed the objects of your worship. I was checking things out, man. I was paying attention. Again, family, wouldn't it be nice if we paid attention to the details in people's lives? How many times, I hope this has happened to you, when you remember something about someone or you're praying for someone and you've been loving up on someone for Jesus and you say, hey man, how's the baby doing? I know she was sick last week. Not because you're trying to set them up, because you love them. Hey man, how's your mom doing? I know she went to the hospital, you wanted me to pray. Hey man, how, you know, how's the marriage going? You know, I know you've been struggling, man. I'm, I'm praying for you, man, you know? He notices, he paid attention. You know, and then Paul uses their own culture. He points them to Christ. Actually, verse 28, he quotes their own Stoic and Epicurean philosophies. Paul knew the culture. When we know the culture, we know the people, we understand their, their, their struggles, we understand their hopes, we understand their dreams, we understand their fears, then we could biblically, faithfully share the gospel to them where they live. Paul stood to proclaim the gospel he began by respectfully establishing a common ground with the hearers so he could work from their culture to the scriptures. He started, listen, he started with their questions. They put up that altar. It was the question that they had, we might miss something, we don't really know. We're religious people, but we're not sure. Paul begins with their questions, where they're at. Now, Paul, when he went into the synagogue, where did he start? The scripture. Right? Acts 17, Paul went into the synagogue, reasoned from the scripture, explained and approved to them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Not in Athens, they didn't have scripture. Sometimes I wonder if we, if we expect people to, to understand this or expect people to, to have, you know, know that this has authority over their lives when they don't know Jesus. Sometimes you just got to start where they're at. And that's what Paul is doing, starting where they're at. So a very different place of beginning. In Acts chapter 13, Paul's talking to the Jewish people on his first missionary trip. And he goes into the synagogue, and he talks about their struggles in Egypt, times of the judges, Samuel the prophet, you know, Saul and David the king, calls them children of Abraham. And then he points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as a fulfillment of the Old Testament Scripture, because that's what they had. But while he's in Athens on Mars Hill, it's a totally different presentation of the same gospel. He recognized that the culture of the people were different. He begins at a different place and answers different questions. The question that was on their heart was on their mind. That's where he went to. You know, that's exactly what we do. It's ironic because that's exactly what we do when we send people overseas. Do we not? 
We're all missionaries. So we have global partners that, that are in Africa, they're in uh, Tajikistan. And what we do and what we did with Brian and Jen Zerbe was they spent the first year or two just learning language, understanding culture, right? They didn't come and go, you know what, we've got some food from Glenmont and this is the way we dress from Glenmont, this is the way we, you know, this is our culture from Glenmont and we want to convert you Tajikistan to the Glenmont culture. That wouldn't have went very well. What they did was they learned the people, they learned the language, they learned the culture, they learned the dress, they learned the food. They learned their hopes, they learned their dreams, they learned their fears. And when they had that gathering of cultural information, then they could start saying, here's Jesus, here we can go with Jesus, here's how Jesus will heal that, here's how Jesus will answer that question, here's how Jesus will speak to that fear, to that hope, to that dream. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. Paul used their false belief of idol worship at Mars Hill to initiate the truth of Jesus Christ. Paul discovers those bridges, the points to share the gospel by acknowledging the spiritual question that they had. Let me tell you something. Everybody, all people, are incurably religious. You, you could say, not me, I, don't, I go to church, I don't go to church, I don't read my Bible, I'm not religious. I, you know, I, that's just suppressing truth. I'm going to tell you that right now. All right, right deep down in our hearts, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that every human heart God has placed eternity in. Every human heart has the question of what happens next. That's part of being made in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. The desire to have communion with God, the desire to have fellowship with God, the desire to have relationship with God is there. But what we do is, because of sin, we suppress the truth, the Bible says. And we worship created things rather than the creator God. So we suppress it. Everyone's searching for life, meaning, and purpose. Everyone's searching for justification, for love. Everyone's searching for, for uh, uh, some sort of self and identity. That has everything to do with being made in the Imago Dei. Everything to do with it. Again, because of sin. Listen, let me tell you something. Every single person in this room is a worshiper. That's not an issue. Your time, your talents, your treasures go somewhere. The question is not if you worship. The question is what you worship and who you worship. Because that's part of the Imago Dei. And what Paul is doing is he's saying... You have this unknown God. You're not really sure. You're religious people, and, and, and you, you want to know this, but listen, that, that's, that's innate in all of us. We've all been made in the image of God. That's innate in all of us. That's what he's telling them. And he, and, he, and he grabs what's been on their heart, what's on their mind. He grabs that, and he says, let me run with this. Because this is all of us. You know, atheists can be people who are trying to do the right thing. Right? The Bible says the law is written on every human heart. Agnostics are people who want to be good moms and dads. The Bible talks about God being father, wanting care for his children. Activists that are, bro- that are so concerned about the brokenness of this world <laughs> want to show great compassion toward others. That's the image of God. Yes, broken as it may be. But why not use those things? to look for connections? Why not use those bridges to, to contextualize, to, to, to draw them closer to the person of Christ, which we'll see he does. He makes those connections. Look what he says in verse 24. And following. Now, James Montgomery Boyce points out four, three things in this text. I just want to point them out real quickly as we go. 
Okay, three things of why the pagan philosophies were a problem to the Greeks. Number one, look at verse 24. Number one, God is the creator, verse 24. The God, he says, okay, he's like, listen, let me, let me find my place. He says, you, you worship, there's, there's an unknown God, but therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. All right, let me, let, me, let me speak the truth to you about God. Number one, he's the creator. God made the world, everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Crush their theology. Right? I mean, temples everywhere. God is the creator. And notice he doesn't say, turn to Genesis 1.1. Let's look at Genesis together. They were like, we don't care about no Bible. But God is still the creator. That's because creation itself speaks does not psalm say the heavens declare the glory of god and the sky proclaims his handiwork every atom every molecule in the universe bears the stamp of deity and he points to the fact that there is a god and you know that and he says does it make sense that this god this creator god somehow you could make something for him or leave some food out for him that somehow you can contain him no, I, I don't think so. He's the creator of the world. Look what he says, number two. He's not only the creator, he's the sustainer. Nor is he served by human hands. God's, not, God's the creator. He, he, he can't be served by human hands as though he needed anything from you. Since he himself gives to us all mankind life and breath and everything. This truth was brought home further. It, it directly attacks the Epicureans' belief that God is absent and the Stoics... That God is in everything. God is the sustainer. God's the creator. God is the sustainer. And God is the ordainer. Look at the next verse. 26. And he, God Almighty, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all. Notice that he says that. Every nation, all the face of the earth, not just Greece, not just Athens, all the nations, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of all their dwellings. Literally bookmarking it. You know what he's saying? He's saying God is sovereign over the world. God bookmarked the appointed times and the boundaries where everyone is walking. That's what he's saying. We don't know the future. We don't know what God has determined to do in all the affairs of men. On this side, right? We're not God. But nevertheless, God is in control of what happens. Folks, let, let, me, let, me, let, me just, let me just share this with you. Just because you can't figure out what God is doing, particularly in brokenness, particularly in evil, particularly when things go bad, because you and your brain that's about that big, or the size of a fist, they say, can't figure it out, don't be so pompous to think that it's not purposeful. Like, God is the God of the universe. He knows every single thought, motive of every single human heart at the exact same time. He might be a little bit smarter than you. Maybe. Right? He's, he is sovereign. He is the creator. He sustains it. If he would turn his back or go to sleep, it would disintegrate. And he is the ordainer. He is moving creation. 
He is moving and determining everything that comes to pass. This is the true God. He said, this ain't their weak God. He's created everything. He is dependent on nothing. He is sovereign over everything. He is higher than any God that they worship. But then he says, look at verse 27. Why? That you should seek God and perhaps feel, feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each of us. So this transcendent, sovereign, creator, sustainer, ordainer wants to have a relationship with you. He needs nothing from you. He is a creator. He is omnipotent over the world. And yet, he tells him, but he wants to have a relationship with you. He's close to you. In fact, he says in verse 28, quoting, you see the quotes in your Bible, in him we live and move? That's not a Bible quote. A lot of times you read your Bible, it's in quotes, it's a quote in the Old Testament. That's not the Old Testament. That's Greek philosophy. Okay, Paul knows his culture. Paul knows the things that are going on in his day. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's what some of your guys said, he's saying to them. Some of your own people said that. And some of you even said, for we are indeed his offspring. They're from Greek philosophers. What Paul is doing is using their own writings to show the Athenians that there is a God created you with dignity, value, and worth, and he wants to have a relationship with you. Now, he knows that they don't understand that. It's not that these poets were writing scripture, but he's using it as a bridge to connect them to Jesus. That's what he's doing. Connect them to Christ. But, but what, what's so cool about this, too, one of the major things that he's confronting, I think, is that the Greek gods that they were seeking after, um, they were worshipped, they were called into worship into these pagan temples for what they can get out of the god, right? So what you can get out of the god. That, that, so in other words, if you lived in Athens in that day and you need money, you would go to the temple of Artemis because that's the goddess of prosperity. So I want something. I need money. I need finances. So I'm going to Artemis. I'm going to offer up a sacrifice for, the, for prosperity. If you need wisdom, you go to the goddess of Athena. The picture of Zeus with her coming out of his head. Get some wisdom there. If you wanted victory, it was the goddess of Nike. N-I-K-E, victory. That's where you get that from. Right? If you wanted fertility or beauty and sexual fulfillment, you would go to the temple of Viagra. No. The temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite. That was the sexual, that's where the prostitutes were. That, that's where you, I want to make sure you guys are up, okay? But that's where you would go if you had those issues. And they were drawn into the temple worship, not because they were beautiful and, and worship, excuse me, and, and uh, adornable and, and worthy of worship. They were drawn into those temples because they wanted something. I want this from you. I will, I will serve you this way and you will give me what I want. It wasn't that they wanted, it wasn't that, you know, uh, uh, wasn't anything that they just saw in the beauty of this God. The real God, listen, the real God that Paul is preaching is so glorious and so transcendent that he is his own reward. Okay? To know him. Nothing else. First Peter, one of my favorite verses. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, the bottom line, to bring us to God. 
That's it. A.W. Tozer, one of his prayers, says, if you've got anything from Tozer, read it. He writes, he prays this prayer. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire, O God, the triune God. I want to want thee. I long to be filled with the longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. It's just to know Christ. Why is that so important? Look at verse 30. Because the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now God commands all people, not, not just to Athens, all people, all philosophies, all people, everywhere to what? Repent. Because he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and... Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I, I, I know this is plain, but I need to make it clear. Wherever Paul started, whatever connections he made, whatever contextualization that he's done, wherever he began, he always ends with the gospel. Okay? No matter what connections you make, no matter how much you love somebody up, and you should, no matter how much you hear their story, you should, the gospel needs to be spoken. No matter what bridges, no matter what connection points, bring it to the end, and that is the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul is now saying to them a countercultural message. He is warning his hearers that a day is coming that Jesus Christ will come. A day of accountability will come. The secrets of men's hearts, the secrets of their minds will be revealed, and Jesus Christ will judge. Therefore, repent. Repent from your idolatry. Repent from your false worship. Repent from your uh, empty philosophies and turn to Jesus. That's what he's telling them to do. Times of forbearance had come to an end. Repentance means to turn. Now, that may not be a popular thing. In fact, I'll say so. It's not popular for you to tell your people that you love, your neighbors, your friends, your family, people you go to school with, people you work with, that they need to repent. That's hard, I know. That's exactly the message of the gospel. If you're a Christian, you can say to them, I know this is hard. I have to do it. I keep doing it. In fact, I repent every day because I'm a sinner. But we have to turn. We have to turn. Repentance and faith, one coin, two sides. Trusting and repenting go together. Okay? He said, no longer are you caught up in, in worshiping the unknown God. He gives them three reasons. Quickly, God is patient, right? Forbearance. God commands it, and God will judge the world. And notice in the text when it says, if you have an ESV, it says, give an assurance. That word literally means proof. So you see what he's saying? He has given us proof. He has given us assurance. He has made it clear and sure that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. How and why? By raising him from the dead. Radical in that day. 
radical today too, but they did not believe in the resurrection of any dead. When you die, that's it. And Paul preaches the truth of the resurrection to people who did not even believe in any resurrection from the dead. Okay? And they came face to face with Christ. And he preaches the cross. He preaches the resurrection. He preaches judgment. That's their only hope. That's your only hope. He didn't want to leave them hopeless. He wanted to be hopeful. And that's their only hope. Uh, one day this week, I think it was Thursday in the evening, I was at uh, the Star with Joy. I was, I was doing some food shopping at night. And I, 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 was, I, was, I was walking out. I saw a, a, a lady there. I looked very familiar. I wear different hats. I, so I wasn't sure how I knew her. But she came up to me and she said to me, uh, I got a question for you. So I thought, okay. She didn't tell me who she was. But I knew, I, she knew I knew her and we knew each other. So I got a question for you. How's that young man David doing? And then it clicked on me. Some of you know David Chowenhill was a friend of mine. He was a blind fellow who passed away about a year ago, a year and a couple of months. She was the home nurse during his sickness. And I said, David passed away. And, and she was taken back. And I said, yeah, about it. And I, I explained the story to her. And our eyes got, you know, welled up with tears a little bit because we, we miss him, we love him. And um, so I was kind of choked up. She was kind of choked up. And, and I just got, guys said, you know, well, good to see you. I got my car and I drove away. And I remember distinctly thinking, my heart is so broken but I am so overjoyed. If you know, if you've never experienced that, I don't know. Because I can't wait to see him again. That's the resurrection. That's the hope. That changes everything. That changes everything. That's a game changer. You've got to deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. You see, it's one thing to talk to your philosophies and different views and perceptions and, 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 and ideologies, but when you say, wait a minute, there's a man who claimed to be God, there's a man who claimed to die for sin, there's a man who claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and he died and he rose eternally from the grave, exalted, we saw him, we fellowship with him, you've got to deal with that. You've got to deal with that because Christianity must be embraced. Otherwise, you're not being honest with yourself. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's factual. You've got to deal with it. It changes everything. And therefore, the Bible says that his resurrection vindicates and, and, and verifies his claims. He said he will come and judge the nations. He rose from the dead. He's going to do it. He said he can forgive sin. He rose from the dead. He can do it. He said that he is the eternal son of God. He rose from the dead. Everything he said... It's true. It's a game changer. Flannery O'Connor wrote a book. Some of you may know her. She's a writer. A Good Man is Hard to Find. A story about a grandmother whose family was in an accident on an abandoned country road. And uh, they ran into a ditch. The family was approached by three banded men. One of them was named Misfit. He was a wanted killer whom the grandmother admits to recognize. And that really much sealed her fate. So they grabbed this family and this misfit, and this misfit tells his other two partners and takes the family out one at a time and shoots them and, and kills them. And the grandmother is, is pleading with her life and, and pleading with this man for his life, and she says something to him like, you know, um, uh, I'll pray for you, something about Jesus. And it prompts the, myth, uh, it prompts the misfit to say, 
Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. He's thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, and that is nothing for you to do, is what he's saying. If he did what he said, and then it's nothing for you to do but to throw away everything and follow him. But if he did not do what he said, there's nothing to do for you but to kill and maim and be mean. You see, the resurrection, he understood that. The misfit understood that. If the resurrection is true, it's a game changer. It throws everything off balance. Dr. Keller writes in his, uh, wrote, um, spoke in his sermon on this. He said that this, this woman, this Flannery, actually a couple of years later explained the meaning of the story. She said this. This story is a duel of sorts between the grandmother and her superficial beliefs and the misfits more profoundly felt involvement with Christian actions than at the world being off balance for him. In other words, this was a combination of showing that this guy understood in the depth of his heart that if the resurrection is true, it's a game changer. Folks, there is so much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is so much uh, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Read, study. What will you do with that? What will you do with that? Let's, Let's close. Verse 32. Because let's see what they did. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysus and Aripiget, something like that. We'll go really fast, we'll make believe. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul had three people, three different people response. One, they're like, ah, you're crazy, you're a nut, you're a babbler, it's true. I want nothing to do with you. Number two, hmm, sounds interesting. I want to hear some more. Number three, I believe. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. Every sermon ever preached will have those three responses. Some of you are thinking, you know what? You're crazy. I don't believe any of this stuff. I'm just here. I'm tuned out. Some of you here are going, hmm, I'm hearing the same story over and over about Jesus, and it's starting to really take root into my life. I'm coming back next week. Some of you are here saying, I believe. I trust. I love. I, I worship Jesus Let me close by telling you this. We, as the children of God, must live on mission. We're going to see the idols. We're confronted by our own idolatry and the idols of this world. We should not run from it, but press into it without sin for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to make connections, look for bridges, understand people, love people, care for people, serve people. So that you can point them to Jesus Christ. Understanding and contextualizing so that they understand the gospel. Connecting them where they are. Why? Because when Jesus looked down at our sin-stained, soaked world and saw your idolatry in your heart, he didn't run from this world. He came to it. He saw the brokenness. He saw the idols. He saw your false worship. And rather than just sit back and watch the mess you were in, what did Jesus do? He came and pressed into this culture, yes, without sin, and died an atoning death to spare you, to free you from your idols, to forgive you of your sins. He didn't leave us in the broken culture. He entered in in the person of Jesus Christ and died for your sins so that you can have an intimate relationship with him. Therefore, why should we not do what he has already done for us? So if you have any questions or doubts, should I do this? That's what Jesus did for you. We should go and do likewise. 
Jesus said in John 17, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Will you go? It may be messy. You may make some mistakes along the way. In fact, you will. I have. But it's not something we keep to ourselves. Love people, point them to Jesus, build that bridge, and tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the answer of every longing of every heart. Let's pray. Father, you rescued us. It's been said that our hearts are idol factories, and they are. As soon as we tear one down, we struggle to keep it off. and We put another one up, and we have to tear that down. Lord, I pray, by the power of your Spirit, you would smash our idols. That we would pursue you, be it relationships, be it work, job, kids, family, even good things that have become ultimate things. Lord, we want to remove that idol. We want to worship and treasure and, and, and uh, magnify you and you alone in our lives. Help us to see that, Lord. We pray, Father God, that you would use us as your people to live life, yes, separate from sin, but have a sentness about us that we may share the good and glorious news of Jesus Christ who came into the world, who died for sin, who rose again, and is calling everyone everywhere to repent to turn from their sins, to trust Jesus. If you have never done that, do that so today. Do that today. Trust in Christ today. And if if you have not been living on mission, maybe today's the day you say, Lord, I'm going to take a step of faith. I'm going to beg somebody in my heart, somebody in my mind right now that I need to talk to. I just need to build relationship and look for openings. And uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit would lead and guide us to do that. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. I look forward to what you're going to do in and through us. In Jesus' good name, amen.